welcome to Weaver Beyond the Numbers, where Weaver professionals talk about business and accounting. We'll explore a wide variety of topics from tax law and accounting standard changes to managing cyber, fraud, financial, and operational risks. What do these issues mean to your business? Join us as we go beyond the numbers to find out. Today on Weaver Behind the Numbers, we welcome back one of my favorite guests to talk Texas economy, and that's Adam Jones, consultant for Weaver and owner of Capital Jones LLC. Adam, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, Thank you, Shelby, and thanks for the kind words. It's great to be here. Well, so last time we talked about Texas durability as a LIFO economy, meaning last in, first out of a national recession and how strong the numbers look for 2019. So now that we are in August, uh, no, we're in September now. Gosh, where's the time going? Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the features of the Texas economy over the past few years. So the last quarter of fiscal 17, I'm going back a couple of years, the Texas real GDP increased around 5%, which was way ahead of the country. The Dallas Fed said to expect a cooling off period in 18, and a year later, the Texas economy had grown 6.6%, so three times the national average. So regardless of predictions, the Texas economy just relentlessly pushes forward um, in the face of oil shocks, in the face of recessionary fears. Uh, Some of it is just tremendous job growth in Dallas, Houston, Austin, and some of it is also circumstance, which we'll get into a little more today as well. And so when you say that Texas experienced uh, quite an increase in the GDP, uh, what were some of the numbers that other states were seeing compared to Texas? The national average was was 2.2 at the tail end of 18, and uh, nobody was really close. Uh, Texas was three times the national average, but but a couple of percentage points ahead of anybody else. California, New York, Ohio, things we think of as large economies. The the folks who get closest are typically, you know, sort of outlier small states. Um, And then 19, the most recent data, Texas is still at over 5% growth, which is just, it's remarkable to sustain that level of growth. Some states can do it every once in a while, but the most recent data puts Texas almost uh, twice what California's rate of growth was. There was a state that finally surpassed us, West Virginia, by just a bit, uh, but but the Texas economy just just churns along without many, uh, without many peers that are relevant comparisons. Right, right. Well, I'm glad you mentioned California, because I know that's going to be a topic that uh, we'll get to in this podcast, uh, kind of comparing the Texas and California economies. But let's talk about the sustainability of this type of GDP, and then also just the sustainability of the, the government spending here in Texas. So the Texas legislature took a very big bet they had uh, huge surpluses both in their general fund and, and the economic stabilization fund, what we typically call the rainy day fund, and they spent all of it. 
the the centerpiece of the the last Texas legislature was eleven billion dollar school finance program, about six and a half billion dollars of state aid to public schools, and another five billion in uh, property tax reductions, and record investments in infrastructure, record expenditures out of the uh, rainy day fund for Harvey recovery for building projects. Uh, for a lot of other priorities and additions to the public schools. But what Texas didn't do is they didn't fundamentally change their tax system. They didn't raise taxes. They didn't create new sources of revenue. Uh, Texas is what they call a two-legged stool. There's no personal income tax in Texas. So we depend on sales tax growth and we depend on property tax growth, uh, particularly to pay for local services. So with a burgeoning economy, um, and Texas is not a burgeoning economy, it is a continually progressing economy, that works fine. But any economic downturn, and you're starting to see some recessionary fears pop up here and there in the, in the economic reporting, would be a real problem for the next Texas legislature because they're sustaining a whole lot of expenditures uh, that, you know, the cynical among us would think you're going to invest huge amounts in public education and leave taxpayers holding the bag in a couple of years if this economy turns south at all. Uh, it's a pretty big bet. Well, and you mentioned that the rainy day fund, so they spent the entire rainy day fund. They didn't spend the entire rainy day fund, um, but they did spend about $9 billion out of it, which is unprecedented for a very conservative Texas legislature. Right. So uh, they spent $9 billion in supplemental appropriations. $6 billion of it actually came out of the rainy day fund. Far more than they've ever spent, though. Uh, and they spent all the surplus they had. So Texas still has a pretty nice nest egg in the rainy day fund. And Hurricane Harvey was literally the biggest rainy day recorded in Texas, so it, it makes some sense. Yeah. But this was a um, legislature in high spend mode uh, without, I'm not going to say that they didn't have any thought to the consequences, but they were in spend now mode, which is a departure from the past leadership in the Texas legislature. Right. But that's not to say that the past leadership, that the fundamental conservative leaders, I mean, Texas, even though it's been discussed that Texas is becoming a little bit of a purple state, the uh, elected officials are still very much red, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, Texas still has a winning streak of statewide elected officials uh, going back to 1994. They've all been Republicans, and this is still conservative leadership. So they're may be some signs of cracks in that foundation, but you still have conservative leadership across state government positions. Some would argue a more conservative leadership than the state population as a whole has become over the last uh, five or six years or the, the last two or three election cycles. So a lot is said about Texas, but uh, The Economist wrote a feature article about Texas versus California this year that, that you've expressed an interest in. So what was the article and what were the main takeaways that you found particularly insightful? The Economist 
which is a great source because they're a, a pretty unbiased publication with uh, their they're British, so they take a sort of a third-party view of their former colony. <laughs> and they um, ran a piece comparing the two successful economies of Texas, California, and their premise was they're wildly different models, and which one of those models will be more sustainable in the long term. They're, they're both different economic models, and they're different political models, it's sort of a contest of wills um, between Texas and California. Texas is historically low tax, limited regulation, a fairly low public service state, and we're just fantastic at economic development. California is a high tax, extensive regulation, particularly environmental regulation, high public service, and California has built a tremendous higher education infrastructure. Uh, attracting lots and lots of high-tech companies in need of highly educated folks. And these states have really parted ways over the last 10 years. California and Texas are both sort of extreme economic models, and, and there are things to like about each of them, but they're very different. And these are two states that make up a quarter of the GDP in the United States, about 14% of it in California, about 11% of it in Texas, and they account for a lot of the variability in GDP in the United States. Do the differences between the two states have a lot to do with the political ideologies from elected officials? They have everything to do with the political ideologies of elected officials. And they used to be very similar in their approach. You know, California gave the world Richard Nixon. They gave the world Ronald Reagan. Um, but California has turned into a democratic bulwark. It is a deep, deep blue state. Uh, and Texas has always been a conservative state with regard to tax, with regard to regulation, with regard to encouraging business and corporate development, fairly limited regulation, and limited taxation. Texas is getting a little bit bluer politically, but when you survey actual ideology, Texas is still a pretty conservative state with regard to the populace in ways that California simply isn't anymore. What do you mean by that? Texas, For, for starters, Texas is a much... Well, it's bigger. How's that for <laughs> yeah? How's that for for insight? <laughs> Texas has um, a broad uh, agrarian past. There is a lot more. Um, there's a lot more open space. There are a lot more rural areas in Texas, and Texas has a a long history of entrepreneurship in the oil fields, in agriculture, in um, you know, innovative folks uh, staking out on their own the old the old old west wildcatter mythos. Texas also yeah. has a much longer um, border with Mexico and a much longer history of uh, interactions between Anglos and Hispanic folks um, than California does. California has uh, 
always been a more urban state, although California is a, a huge agricultural producer and it has its rural areas as well. But California is dominated by the coast uh, and it is a um, dominated by immigration and technological innovation and, uh, and as I mentioned, incredible higher education system. It's, it's just a very different feel than Texas has. Um, the number of, of cities in California over 100 or 200,000 population is incredible. It's a, it's a list that goes into the hundreds. Uh, it's a very mm -hmm. densely populated state. It's getting to become, well, it's not just getting to become, it's, it's an incredibly expensive state in terms of housing and cost of living, and California is starting to feel that strain, whereas Texas still has room to go. Texas is still a place you can get a decent job and buy a house and raise a family and start a life, uh, and that's getting harder and harder to do in California, and the growth rates of the, of the two states bear that out. Well, you mentioned the uh, the border that both Texas and California share with Mexico and some of the trade concerns that um, are, are coming to light. But before I get to that, I want to mention something that it's, we here in North Texas are very aware of, and that is a lot of the corporate relocations. Uh, one particular big one was, has been Toyota from California to Texas. Is that move what we're seeing in some of the uh, the shifting populations, especially, and, and other differences between California and Texas? You're seeing a lot of, of both corporate relocations to Texas and just individual relocations to Texas because they um, see opportunities, particularly companies in growth mode. Um, like the Texas infrastructure, they like the workforce, but they really like the lack of regulation and the reasonable tax structure. Um, there was a, a joke in the Economist article that said, in California, a rising tide lifts all yachts. <laughs> because if you are a huge corporation, Google, Facebook, uh, you know, list off any other large California-based technology concern, California is a great place to be. It, it affords a hotbed of in, innovation and an unending stream of smart, young, hip employees who want to live in places like California. But it's not easy to start a business in California. It's not easy to run a small business in California, especially if you're a business uh, construction, for example, that runs up against environmental regulation. So as far as business formation and growth, it's advantage Texas. The Texas Achilles heel is probably uh, the workforce. We've, we've talked in the past, Shelby, about workforce attainment in Texas or educational attainment in Texas, which lags behind uh, where it probably ought to be. So mm -hmm. if, if there's a future concern for corporate relocation in Texas, it'll be the workforce. But right now, they are seeing great success in a low-tax, low-regulation environment where their employees have uh, plenty of room to grow, plenty of places to live, 
it, it is just easier to find a job, home, raise a family in Texas than it is in California. That, right. And that's really, that's really not an opinion. That is really starting to take hold as the one of the fundamental differences between the two states. So Texas trade has been on the upsurge lately, and even given the global trade concerns that are happening. So what is happening in Texas that trade is still on the rise where everywhere else it's being severely impacted by uh, trade embargoes and tariffs and, and sanctions? The, the single word I would tell you is Mexico. In uh, this past March, March of 19, the port of Laredo became the nation's biggest volume port. And it was the first time it ever happened because the port of Los Angeles has owned that title for decades. It was a, a bit of surprise that Laredo overtook it. I mean, if you ask 100 Americans what's the biggest port in the United States, very few of them are going to say Laredo unless they right. live in South Texas. The difference is, it's a pretty easy explanation. In 2018, the United States' largest trading partners were China, Canada, Mexico, in that order. In 2019, year to date, they are Mexico, Canada, China, in that order. We're not in a trade war with Mexico, or we're not last time I checked, but both the Port of Laredo and, to a lesser extent, the Port of Houston benefit greatly from a reasonably open trade relationship with Mexico and Canada. The Port of Los Angeles, which still leads all ports in the volume of imports, has seen their exports slash dramatically because their biggest trade partner is China. 46% of exports from the Port of Los Angeles go to China. And 98% of all trade in Laredo is from Mexico. So there are trade and tariff concerns, particularly among Texas farmers and ranchers. But as far as you know, most durable goods, manufacturing, of course, oil and gas, Texas is benefiting from current U.S. trade policy in almost an opposite way that California is hurt by saying, and China is the big issue. So if Laredo is depending, you know, 98% of its trade comes from Mexico, how fragile is it then if the current administration creates boundaries, both literal and uh, metaphorical, between the U.S. and Mexico? Oh, it could, it could have a precipitous impact on the Texas economy, and this administration has threatened Mexican tariffs. You remember a few months ago, we had a tariff threat connected to slowing the, slowing the speed of illegal immigration, and the administration didn't carry through on that, that threat. So, yeah, it could, it could end in a hurry, and we could find ourselves like Port of Los Angeles with an a unreliable trade partner impacted by U.S. tariffs. Uh, that hasn't happened yet. Um, the renegotiation of NAFTA, uh, which we're, we're calling, I think, the United States-Canada-Mexico Trade Agreement, has gone reasonably smooth, but we've never, by we, I mean, the current administration views China as an enemy, whether we talk about corporate secrets or we talk about currency manipulation or a lot of other issues We've never taken that stance with 
Mexico and Canada, and it has really created a stable, safer place for Texas with regard to trade and economics versus the impact it's had on California. When talking about the administration, of course, we start to look to the 2020 presidential race. Is Texas really a, a true battleground state? Yeah, the, the answer is probably yes. And it is hard to tease out uh, the so-called Trump effect from the broader political currents. The, the University of Texas and the Texas Tribune have a fantastic project called the Texas Politics Project. And that is a quarterly poll of Texas attitudes on a variety of public policy issues. And their last poll, this is June of 2019, makes Texas a coin flip for Trump in 2020. So is Texas a battleground state in the presidential race? I think that answer is probably yes, because right now Texans poll about 50-50 whether they would vote for President Trump or whether they were not. Now this is a poll against an undefined Democratic candidate who has yet to be named, but even when you look at polling data from other places in individual matchups, Texas is in play. So in 2020, I think Texas is kind of a sneaky battleground state uh, that the, the Democrats are going to try and pick off. They, they opened the, the Democratic National Campaign Committee, opened an office in Austin recently, uh, and some people draw parallels to when the Democratic, uh, the DNC opened an office in Orange County a couple of decades ago, which helped turn California a, a pretty deep shade of blue at this point. California is not really a contested state in the presidential election. It hasn't been for some time. So there are cracks in the Republican foundation. So Texas is a diverse economy, of course. You know, we have everything from winter wheat to, to citrus and cattle and agriculture. Talk to me a little bit about uh, hogs in Texas and something you've termed the Chinese hog problem. This is one of my favorite illustrations of, of economics that I've seen over the last couple of weeks. The, in China, they have had, over the last year, a 32% reduction in their hog population to, to an African swine fever outbreak. So agricultural data in China is not perfectly reliable, but, but we can reasonably assume that about a third of the Chinese hog population is in peril because of an African swine fever outbreak. At the same time, the United States has an all-time high of domestic hogs, about 75 million of them. Uh, and there are more hogs in Texas than you think. You think of Texas as cattle country, but as you get into the upper reaches of the panhandle, um, there are a number of hog farms in Texas. So in a free trade environment, this is an easy problem to solve, right? Except there's a 62% tariff on U.S. hog exports to China. So um, that's, that's just not fixable. So when you, you want to look at a real consequence of a trade war, I always go back to the Chinese hog problem. Uh, this is one of, uh, of dozens of examples of the U.S.-China trade war, uh, U.S. imposing tariffs on China, 
China imposing retaliatory tariffs, and at the moment, it has probably hurt U.S. agriculture more than uh, any other sector of the economy. So there are trickle-down effects in Texas. We're, we are not immune from the effects of a trade war. Uh, we're just sort of shielded from them because of a, a great relationship um, with Mexico and an unending supply of uh, countries that want to boil, buy oil, gas, and derivatives out of the port of Houston. So there, there are a couple right. of things going for us that offset things like agricultural tariffs. You know, in Texas, they, uh, they say, don't mess with Texas. Well, if you are a resident of more rural areas of Texas, or, or heck, even some of the farther reaching suburbs, you don't mess with Texas hogs, feral hogs especially. Those things no. are mean. <laughs> Unfortunately, you can't export feral hogs. I know. We, Why can't we just send those out? That would be a second problem we could solve. Uh, that's maybe something that uh, you wouldn't ex exactly expect from Texas. Like you said, you think of Texas as cattle country. But uh, what is something that the national media doesn't understand about Texas? What are some of the kind of the fallacies or the misconceptions there? What they don't understand about Texas it, it, is that it is a highly sophisticated uh, and diverse urban state. You know, it's 800 miles from tip to tip, no matter how, how far you drive. So you think of Texas as Montana or one of the Nakotas. And that, and that Old West mythology is very strong. But Texas has huge, sophisticated cities. Houston... Uh, and particularly, it, and, and I'm talking about the Houston metro area, particularly Fort Bend County, is the most diverse large city in the United States, even more diverse than New York. So Texas has an influx both of uh, native-born Texans, a, a huge, of course, Latino population, but we also have huge immigrant populations from all over the globe in our major cities, whether that's Houston, whether that's Dallas-Fort Worth, Boston, and San Antonio. These cities are, are every bit as diverse and sophisticated as the cities along the eastern seaboard, and national reporters don't always get that um, unless they're on the ground here. The other thing that national reporters regularly get wrong about Texas is they miss, sometimes they, they treat the Texas Latino population as a homogeneous voting block. And it's, it's not true. The, the Texas Latino population is highly diverse from the Rio Grande Valley to El Paso to San Antonio. And their voting patterns are diverse too. Um, one of the, the issues we always there is a, a common political science thread that the rise of the Latino voter in Texas will be the end of the GOP. Well, there are a couple of problems. One is voter turnout, but the other problem is Latino voters in Texas vote Republican in pretty uh, large numbers. Now, some of that is starting to change, and we're seeing shifts because of the national conversation about immigration you know, and the current administration is starting to drive some of that voting restraint out of the Republican Party and toward the Democratic Party. But there's a, a nuance in Texas that sometimes uh, national journalists don't pick up on. 
And specifically the immigration discussion, because Texas is very affected by immigration reform and what could be catastrophic for a lot of families and just a lot of the bi-city areas. Like, you know, you'll hear uh, El Paso described as it's not this side of the border or that side of the border. There are two cities that have a lot of continuity there. Yes, you, you make a great point. Texas has the largest border with Mexico of any state, and, and there's not another border that's close. So you're talking about hundreds of years of culture and community and family that you know have freely crossed and interacted across the border for decades, for a couple of centuries even. And that dynamic in... Texas politics is going to be interesting to follow. The The other thing you see in Texas is the rise of Democratic voting strength in the suburbs. Counties that used to be reliably uh, Republican are shifting a little bit. It, it first happened in the 2016 presidential election when Hillary Clinton won Fort Bend County, the famous home of, of Sugarland House Majority Leader Tom DeLay. And Fort Bend County went Democrat because of a, of thousands and thousands of new voters. In the 2018 Senate race, that's, of course, Ted Cruz against Beto O'Rourke, you saw Tarrant County, Fort Worth, with a Democratic plurality. Um, both Williamson and Hayes County, the allegedly uh, conservative, uh, I'm on the uh, radio, but I'm using air quotes, (laughs) the conservative counties that border Austin both went in the O'Rourke column, uh, as did Jefferson County, which is Beaumont, um, Nueces County, which is Corpus Christi. So with each passing iteration, uh, Texas Republican suburban voting strength gets a little bit more diluted. I think that factor, more than any other, shows that Texas might be a state in play in the 2020 presidential race. Something else that you've talked about is uh, some of the conflict uh, that's uh, kind of taking place between cities and state government in Texas. Explain a little bit about that situation and what you mean. Texas state government, as I mentioned, is a a very Republican-dominant, conservative policymaking body, either the Texas Senate or the House, uh, backed by a a very popular and conservative Republican governor. But the major cities in Texas are almost all held by Democratic officeholders. And and some of those elections are nonpartisan. But for example, Houston Mayor Sylvester Turner was a Democratic member of the House of Representatives for probably 30 years. So you have a lot more Democratic and more to the point, progressive policymaking in cities, not just Austin, which is kind of the liberal center of Texas, but in Houston, in Dallas, in San Antonio. And the Texas legislature has started sort of a policy of pre- preemption. In other words, they will preempt local ordinances by passing state statute on top of them. One of the famous examples was a ride-hailing statute they passed a couple of sessions back to make sure, and it was targeted at Austin in particular, to make sure that a city couldn't pass regulations to shove Uber and Lyft out. 
And we've seen a lot of these proxy wars over uh, plastic bag bans, over unpaid sick leave ordinances that subject employers in cities to provide paid sick leave to employees. The legislature failed to overturn those ordinances in the last session, and a lot of those things worked their way through the courts. But you, but you see this tension between Texas state legislators and Texas city leaders over how far a city can go to regulate its own infrastructure, its own economy, its own annexation and tax rate. I've, I've mentioned it's almost a, a mini Texas-California proxy war, except it's Texas versus its own cities. And, and again, that's another political dynamic where you're seeing hugely growing Texas cities, um, they're the, the fastest growing cities in the country, are increasingly out of step with the policy priorities of the Texas legislature. How does that compare to California? If Texas is a uh, uh, kind of more of a, a hands-off, uh, low-regulation uh, state, and California is a high regulation state, how then do their cities in turn? What's, I guess, that relationship? Well, California is a democratically controlled state. Uh, I believe it's an assembly in California and a, and a series of cities in California that have been democratically controlled for years and years. And California has always uh, expressed a brand of, of progressive political action at both the state and city level that Texas has not. So, um, you know, California is, I, I hate to, <laughs> the, the term that comes to mind is liberal utopia. Uh, and I, I, I don't, yeah, I don't say that as a majority. I'm, I just say that as California has a well-aligned progressive political infrastructure, and it has for a couple of decades now, so you see some extreme policy in California, particularly with regard to environmental regulation and housing policy, which has caused uh, the cost of living in California to go through the roof. Mm -hmm. uh, you, don't, you don't see that in Texas. Uh, it is a more practical policymaking state, even in even in cities that are democratically controlled, you see sort of a, a common sense conservatism. And, and I don't mean that in the ideological sense. I, I just mean that in the prudent sense right. that doesn't exist in California. The exceptions, uh, Austin, but we won't go into Austin. That's a completely other podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm reminded of a... Um... A phrase that uh, I think actually a derivative of it was mentioned in that Economist article. So we've heard, don't uh, Dallas my Austin. And in the Economist, I think the bumper sticker they referred to was don't California my Texas. I right. guess for those who aren't in California or Texas, uh, explain that to us. It's a, uh, well, it's, it's sort of a broad brush statement. Well, it's on a bumper sticker, of course. So. <laughs> So it kind of, <laughs> kind of by definition, Texas is a, I mean, it is a state rooted in mythology. 
and this mythology of the hardworking rancher wildcatter laying stake to what is his or hers and lighting out for the unexplored territory, um, the self-reliance, the resilience, that, that kind of Texas ethos, one of conservatism, one of practicality. And when you say, don't California up my Texas, it's just a nod to, we don't really want an influx of Californias turning Texas into a high-regulation state that that loses all common sense with regard to policymaking around environmental regulation or recycling or, uh, you know, the, the tolerance of homeless camping is a big one. And it's, it's, it's sort of a fun political debate writ large. What's, what's interesting is California and Texas have a whole lot of things in common that are kind of hidden from view. Dallas is a huge corporate and economic center that rivals San Francisco and Los Angeles in its own way. The diversity of Houston, just the diversity of its economy, of its communities, of the sort of people who call Houston home, looks a whole lot more like Los Angeles than it does rural Texas. And Austin's always been part of California. Well, Austin's a whole other country. <laughs> Austin really is a whole other country. <laughs> We've pointed out on the podcast today, just when you think you have Texas pegged as a conservative state or conservative spending state, things change. And I guess it, it, it shows just how dynamic the state is. That's, that's a great word. The dynamism of Texas never really stops from the oil booms of the past to sort of its transformation to a technology and manufacturing hub to uh, enormous impact of trade at, in Laredo or Houston. Uh, Texas really never stops. It never stops being a topic of conversation. It never stops being a destination for families and immigrants trying to make a new start. Dynamic is a pretty good summation of the Texas economy and the state as a whole. Adam Jones, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Shelby. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of our podcast. Subscribe and tune back in for more Weaver Beyond the Numbers.